Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, falling short. Targets and plans have come and gone, and Canada has yet to deliver on any. Canada's Environment Commissioner sounds the alarm again, saying as they are now, federal programs to cut carbon emissions will fail to meet their targets. Coming up, Commissioner Jerry DeMarco will join us to tell us why. Also, I agree with the Commissioner. We need to do more. We need to do it faster, and that's exactly what our, what our government is doing. MPs will respond to the report and tell us what they think needs to change. Plus... The polls continue to disappoint the governing Liberals. Is there a way back for the party or the Prime Minister? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Overly optimistic and unreliable. That is what Canada's Environment Commissioner is saying tonight about Ottawa's plan to reduce carbon emissions. The federal government did release a game plan last year to tackle the issue. But after examining the details, Commissioner Jerry DeMarco says if things do not change, there is no way the plan's current implementation will meet international carbon emission targets. Canada is the only G7 country that has not achieved any emission reduction since 1990. Taking meaningful action to reduce emissions is the most impactful thing Canada can do to play its part in addressing the global climate emergency. Solutions exist. The problem is that available solutions are being implemented much too slowly. Well, you just saw Canada's Commissioner for the Environment and Sustainable Development in that clip, and Jerry DeMarco, we're happy to say, joins us in studio this evening. Uh, Jerry, good to see you again. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, this is not the first time that you've raised an alarm about Canada being behind its own committed targets, but this time around you're focusing in on the 2030 Emissions Reduction Plan, and you say, again, this country is going to fall short. What's behind that? So they're going to fall short if the plan remains as it is, but there's still time for them to improve it and make the target. So we don't want to give up yet. The problems with the current plan are um, inappropriate assumptions, being a bit too overly optimistic about uh, the projections in the plan, um, and also the lack of timeliness. So a lot of these measures that are in the plan or are projected to be used to meet the target are taking a long time to produce and they don't they don't result in emissions overnight so the longer they take to be produced the longer it'll take to have the emissions drop mm-hmm. okay so so uh, so overly optimistic as you say what about the coordination amongst departments is everybody taking this as seriously as, as you would hope they would so that's been a problem in Canada for some time now, the lack of coordination and leadership in implementing climate commitments. So we've got a lot of different departments, each playing a part. Environment Canada has the lead, but they don't have the authority to require the other departments to toe the line. So without that, uh, without that stick, if you'd call it that, 
they can just hope that they're going to get the cooperation from the other departments, but there's no way of, sure, of being sure. Mm -hmm. Now, you say there is time to get things back on track, and part of that, if I look at my notes here, is about leaning in on the carbon pricing regime as well as regulations. But as you know, right now, there's a debate, and there are many Canadians who, who don't believe in the carbon tax, who thinks, think it is time to, to get rid of it. What impact would that actually have on Canada's targets in terms of cutting emissions in this country? Yeah, so the carbon price and regulations are the two big ticket items for reaching the goal. If one were to remove one of those, it would have to be replaced by some other large measure to meet the, meet the target. So we've, uh, we've said that this plan is better than previous plans because it does have um, measures such as carbon pricing and regulations that have the potential to work, but they still need to tackle the elephant in the room around you know, spiraling oil and gas emissions and transportation emissions. Those two sectors are drowning out the progress in many of the other sectors. Okay, let's pick up on that then, because it was very clear when you talked about the, your report that you're still looking for the oil and gas emissions cap. You're also looking for clean fuel uh, regulations. When you say that is erasing the progress that is being made, just, just how significant of, of contributors are they, and has that actually grown proportionately through the years? Yes, yeah, so the proportion of emissions in Canada that are attributable to those two sectors, oil and gas and transport, is half. So it's, the, you know, even though we track seven or eight different sectors in Canada, half of the emissions are just from two, and those two uh, sectors have been growing as a proportion over the years. They've been growing as a proportion and in terms of absolute emissions as well. And so therefore they're erasing, for example, excellent progress on reducing emissions in the electricity sector but the other two sectors are, as I said, drowning out that progress. Okay, so something we're going to have to track from the government. You know, you are also calling for greater transparency overall when it comes to, to this country's carbon regime. Talk to us about where transparency is, how it's lacking, and how being more open about things will actually help progress in this country. Yeah, so this plan is more transparent than previous plans that have failed to meet targets. So it's better than those, but it's not good enough in terms of transparency. For example, we wanted to uh, look at their figure for reducing emissions in oil and gas, which they had in the uh, report as 31%, but we, we didn't have access to the, to the calculations and the modeling that would come up with that, and therefore we can't verify if it's realistic or not. So a big step in the right direction would be Canada becoming much more transparent in the, the figures behind the plan and whether, whether they add up. Okay. You know, I'm going to play a bit of a devil's advocate, if you, you will, on this, because I appreciate what you're saying here, is that right now we have this commitment to reduce carbon emissions by 40 to 45 percent by 2030. But the government does point to some progress because by their own calculations, they're looking at 34% below 2005 levels. Why is 34% so close to 40? Why is that not sufficient? So the target is a minimum of 40%, preferably up to 45%. 34% is what they're projecting so far from the, uh, the measures in the plan. Is that good enough? Well, in one way, it'd be better than previous uh, targets that we've missed by even more. But I don't think we should be that, uh, that unambitious. We should, we should set a target and make it. It's not that difficult. Other G7 countries have diminished their emissions much more rapidly than Canada. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, add some context to that? When you say that Canada has done, hasn't fared as, better, as well as other countries, put that into context. 
Yes, so since 2005 to now, which is the baseline year that we're using under the current international framework, Canada has the, the lowest level of emissions reductions, but at least there's some reduction since 2005. Since 1990, which is the original baseline year from when the, from the world got together in Rio to create the climate convention, Canada's emissions are still up from that. So think about that, 30 years of working on reducing um, emissions, and our emissions today are still double digits higher than they were when we started. No other G7 country is like that. All of them have at least some reduction. So work to be done, but as you say, it's still possible. It is. Jerry DeMarco, always appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, with their response to the Commissioner's report, we're now joined by Mark Yaritsen, the government's Deputy House Leader, Peter Julian, the NDP House Leader, and Mike Morris, the Green MP for the riding of Kitchener Centre in Ontario. Hello to the three of you. Hello. Hi, good to be with you. Nice to have you here. And listen, before we begin, we do want to acknowledge that we did invite the Conservatives to uh, be a part of the discussion this evening, uh, but they did not have an MP available, so let's continue uh, going forward. And I'll begin with you, Mark, because, you know, the Commissioner says not only will Canada fall short of its international commitment, but even the current numbers are based on overly optimistic assessments of the government programs. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, first of all, I mean, we accept the uh, report from the Commissioner. Uh, the Commissioner has indicated that we're heading in the right direction, but we need to move faster. And we will obviously do that. Um, one of the things uh, that the report leaves out are the sectors that we're still bringing on board uh, new programming for, such as the oil and gas sector, and uh, our plan to uh, put in uh, um, emissions caps there. Uh, as the Minister indicated, the information and the um, the framework for that will be forthcoming, and we should see that later this year. So I'm very confident that once we get key uh, frameworks in place like that, we will absolutely meet those uh, uh, commitments uh, um, that we've set out to achieve. And I think it's also really important to also reflect on the fact that, you know, the, the Commissioner keeps talking about we've fallen short for 30 years. And although that might be true, this government's been in place for you know, eight years now. And the reality of the situation is, is that we've had to play catch up on everything that Harper missed. So here we are playing catch up while also tackling our portion of this and uh, you know we're, we're moving there we have to do it fa we have to move faster and we've uh, we accept and receive that information from the commissioner okay just quickly mark some uh, clarification so we're gonna see the emissions cap on oil and gas as well as clean fuel regs what in a matter of weeks because you say by the end of this year and the parliamentary calendar is running down the minister said that the framework will be uh, available by the end of this year okay uh, Peter what do you make of it given the criticisms and the government's performance uh, what do you make of this report well, I think that's why we've been pushing so hard. I've been seeing the NDP have been pushing uh, for clean energy to ensure that we're getting making the investments that are so important. Uh, that's part of the, the bill, C50, uh, which is ensuring that workers can participate in that clean energy uh, boom uh, that can come with the right investments. We've been pushing on this. As you know, Conservatives who didn't show up for this panel have been trying to block this legislation. And, and that's the problem when you have one party in the House of Commons that's climate denying. But we will continue to push the government to act. It, it, it's, it's not simply a question of paying lip service to the environment. We know with climate change, we know with the, the strength of the, the horrendous impacts we've seen in my province of British Columbia, the heat dome that killed 600 people, the atmospheric river that cut British Columbia off from the rest of the country. These are all examples of the reality of climate change. So the government has to, has to actually do walk the talk 
and uh, the, the NDP has been pushing hard uh, so that the government uh, does that. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike, in, in your reaction, in particular since uh, the Green Party is very much dedicated to this issue, what's your reaction to what you heard today? Well, at a, at a time when the UN Secretary General tells us that the global climate fight will be won or lost in this decade on our watch, what are we seeing? We're the only country in the G7 whose emissions have continued to go up over 1990 levels. And so what this report lays out really clearly is that, first of all, not only is the target that our federal government has set insufficient, it doesn't meet the science, well, on top of that, we're not on track to meet the target. On top of that, the assumptions, the commissioner makes clear, the assumptions that go into us not being on track, those are actually overly ambitious. And all of this before we had a carve out on carbon pricing last week. And so it's disappointing, but it's important information for Canadians to have in order for us to push for the government to do better, because this is, our, our kids deserve a safe climate future, and this information equips us to push for better. Okay, Mark, you know, Mike is mentioning the carve-out for, for home oil heating right now, and the commissioner did say that there's still a chance to meet Canada's targets, in particular by leaning into regulations and the carbon tax. But, of course, there is now this big debate. So uh, I'm going to ask all three of you, but I'll begin with you, Mark. Put this into context. Where do environmental concerns fit right now with the affordability concerns that Canadians are also very much expressing, given that there is also a push right now amongst some to kill the tax altogether? Well, first of all, I just want to pick up on a comment that Peter made earlier, which is the party that happens to be missing here. You're talking to the three parties here that are, want to talk to you about the how. Meanwhile, the one party that's actually asking why isn't even here. So I think that that should speak volumes to where the Conservative Party is on this. Now, when it comes to the affordability issue and the carve-out that we saw um, in recent weeks with the Prime Minister, look, the reality of the situation is, is that we know that heating with home, with oil is the is three to four times as expensive right across the province uh, right across the country compared to other forms of heating and we also know that it's the dirtiest so the objective here was not to carve it out indefinitely it's to put a three-year pause on it to give people and in particular low-income families the opportunity to be able to transition away to a cleaner form such as uh, um, uh, um, heat pumps and at the end of the day that's what we're really trying to achieve from this so listen as an environmentalist am I thrilled about the fact that we are um, removing uh, the price on pollution from uh, one uh, form of uh, heating fuel no I'm not but I do know at the end of the day in the long term we will be better off because more people will have transitioned away from home heating uh, fuel. Now, I will say that I have all due respect for my uh, NDP colleagues and we get along great, uh, you know, when, especially when it comes to issues like this, but I was extremely perplexed yesterday when the NDP chose to side with the Conservatives and try to extend those exemptions for even more sectors uh, of, of home heating. So you got to ask yourself, if you're so committed from the NDP's perspective to getting to those targets uh, and you're willing to sit here and criticize the government, why on earth would you support even creating more opportunities to remove um, the price on pollution, which I think, uh, you know, is, is not the right uh, direction, but unfortunately the NDP chose to do that yesterday. Okay, well luckily Peter Julian sitting beside you so he can respond. Uh, Peter, what do you say to that? Absolutely. Well, Mr. Garrison is not talking about the motion that we presented today. Jagmeet Singh just spoke in the House on this. Uh, what we have is a three-step plan. 
to take the GST off of home heating. That is a way that benefits uh, everybody across the country who's struggling to heat their homes. We are in an affordability crisis and many families are having difficulty keeping food on the table, keeping a roof over their head and heating their homes. And so taking the GST off helps everybody, including in my province of British Columbia, including in Quebec, where they don't have a federal price on carbon. Secondly, ensuring that heat pumps are actually rolled out. Uh, Taylor Bachrach, who's the MP from Skeena-Bulkley Valley, mentioned today that, that the uh, Greener Homes program has rolled out in two years a grand total of 438 heat pumps. Now, at that rate, to make sure all 10 million households are actually covered, it would take 55,000 years of Liberal government to actually make sure everybody gets a heat pump. A, a important part of the NDP's action plan is to ensure that heat pumps actually get to people. And thirdly, how do you pay for it? Well, we, we've seen that the oil and gas sector with enormous profits, over $38 billion last year. And so having an excess profits tax to ensure that we're taking the money from these very profitable companies that aren't paying their fair share of taxes, ensuring that that pays for the heat pump program, which allows us to transition, uh, both uh, provide supports for families that are struggling with affordability, and more importantly, to really fight back against climate change. But if okay, but, but you did vote you did vote to support the, the conservative motion to to take the carbon tax off of all home heating yesterday uh, why that where does that fit affordability versus the green concerns uh, we, we thought that it, it was important to address the affordability issues but uh, as you as you recall Michael we tried to amend the conservative motion so it actually covered British Columbia and Quebec and the conservatives refused okay. that's why our motion today is much more comprehensive covers everything and we're hoping that uh, the Liberals and, and Mr. Garrison will be voting for this motion, which they should do if they're keeping to principle. It certainly does cover everything because it also covers people that, quite frankly, don't need to have that uh, that uh, um, uh, GST removed from their home heating bills. People that live in extremely big houses that can afford uh, to pay the G the GST under this plan, they would be they would not they would not have to pay the GST on home heating. Likewise, it doesn't help people who live in apartments who might have their heating included in their rent. This won't affect them at all. So I actually think that the motion that Mr. Julian is talking about from today was extremely ill thought out. But more importantly, I just, want to, I just want to address one other thing that he said, and that's on the heat pumps. He said, uh, he gave you a number about the number of heat pumps that are being rolled Reading out. Homes? That's yeah, under just Reading one program. program. That's just under one program. But if you look at the total number of people throughout the country that have installed heat pumps, it's in the tens of thousands. So it's important important to reference the full the numbers across the entire country, not just one program. Okay, Mark, I'm gonna, okay, Mark and I, I got to move on because I do have to get Mike in before we're completely out of time. But, but to the original question, Mike, where does affordability fit uh, up against a carbon tax right now, which some Canadians are very much concerned about? So we should be concerned about affordability, but we need to be honest with Canadians. Yes, the carbon tax went up two cents a litre last year. There are rebates that go with it, though. 80% of Canadians are right. better off financially as a result. Meanwhile, the profits of oil and gas companies last year went up 18 cents a litre. No rebates whatsoever. And so if we're going to talk about affordability, we need to be honest about the gouging that's being done by oil and gas companies across the country and the fact that right now the federal government's doing nothing about it. And they have done it already 
with other sectors. We have a Canada recovery dividend already for banks and life insurance companies. I've put forward a motion, it's part of the NDP opposition a motion to today, to say let's just take that same measure, apply it to oil and gas. It's been studied by the PBO already. It would provide $4.2 billion that we could use to help make life more affordable for everyday folks. Okay, well, we'll talk about that debate uh, tomorrow, but for now, thank you for responding to the Commissioner's report. Uh, Mark Gerritsen, Peter Julian, and Mike Morris, have a great evening. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you again. Well, time now for a look at the other stories making headlines on this Tuesday. The Foreign Affairs Minister announced today that a group of Canadians have been able to leave Gaza, with Melanie Jolie taking to social media. Looking forward to seeing all Canadians evacuated and you can be sure and rest assured that this is our number one priority. Global Affairs says at least 59 Canadians have crossed into Egypt through the Rafah border and it expects a total of 80 Canadian citizens, permanent residents and their eligible family members to be able to leave by day's end. Canadian officials are on the Egyptian side of the border helping evacuees reach Cairo safely, but the department warns the situation in the region is still fluid and unpredictable. Meanwhile, in Ottawa, representatives of humanitarian organizations including Islamic Relief, Oxfam and Save the Children urged the federal government to call for an immediate ceasefire instead of a humanitarian pause. A pause will not end the suffering of civilians in Gaza and it certainly will not ease the destruction and death that will surely follow once it is lifted. We need to see an immediate and permanent ceasefire now we cannot afford to wait any longer. A new Angus Reid Institute poll does say that two-thirds of Canadians believe an immediate ceasefire should be called. Also today, the federal government says it will transform six federal properties to build 2,800 new homes across the country. In response to unprecedented housing needs throughout the country, Many of these buildings can be transformed into safe, accessible and affordable homes. This is therefore just the beginning, as we need to step up the pace to ensure that more Canadians have a safe and affordable place to call home. Now that was the Procurement Minister Jean-Yves Duclos with the announcement. The Minister saying the housing projects will be undertaken in Calgary, Edmonton, Ottawa and St. John's by March of 2024. Canada Lands Company, the federal crown corporation that transforms former government properties, will be leading the initiative with the minister saying the company believes this program will enable the creation of more than 26,000 units on its properties, this over the next five years, with the minister also saying 20% of the units will be set aside for affordable housing. And the Quebec government says it will do more to help people struggling with the rising cost of living. The provincial finance minister, Eric Girard, tabling his economic update today and says slow economic growth is making it harder for people to pay for necessities like food and housing. We're at the center of the difficulties. Inflation has come down but is still high. Interest rate went from zero to five percent. We have two wars. It's very difficult right now, right now. The fourth quarter of 2003, the first quarter of 2024. This is gonna be a difficult six month period. 
So in response, the Quebec government will boost some benefits like the family allowance by nearly 6% starting in the new year. It is also investing $1.8 billion over five years to build 8,000 affordable housing units. And in addition, $21 million will be set aside in emergency funding this year for food banks. The provincial government is also projecting $4 billion in deficit in 2023-24, to with the goal of balancing the Quebec books by 2027-28. Is there a path back for the Liberals? That's the question Abacus Data put its mind to this past week, taking a deep dive into the bad polling numbers for the Prime Minister and his party. And with more, we're now joined by David Coletto, the founder, the chair and CEO of Abacus Data. David, thank you for being here. Good to be here, Michael. So as we begin this discussion, you know, we've been talking about the Liberals struggling in the polls for months now. But let's start with where things stand right now, because you, you seem to suggest that conservative numbers are not only solidifying, but gaining in Quebec, which is notable for the Liberals. Yeah, so we've seen since basically July this sort of double-digit lead that the Conservatives have, have developed that is new. There's been, a, you know, two, three, four years it was a competitive race and all of a sudden we saw these numbers move and why I think they've solidified is because we're seeing really no movement. So as of last week we had the Conservatives at 39, the Liberals at 26 and the New Democrats at 18 nationally which is basically where it was uh, last month and where it was the previous month. But as you said underneath that national number are some interesting dynamics, right? Mm -hmm. So the Conservatives are well ahead in the prairies in, in Western Canada. Um, they've taken a, a lead over the last few months in Atlantic Canada, hence the carbon tax carve out. But noteworthy is, is what's happening in Quebec perhaps. And we're seeing for the first time in our tracking in a really, really, I don't even think we can find a moment where this happened, where numerically the Conservatives are ahead of the Liberals in Quebec, which, which we'll see whether this becomes a trend, but signifies that even in Quebec, a, a place that the Liberals thought they were strong, um, they could be could be falling back. Which, of course, is what Conservatives wanted, which is why Pierre Polyev begins every day in French, and also which is why Quebec City was chosen for the Conservative National Convention. But, you know, how much of this has to do with the Prime Minister? Because it seems that when you talk about Liberal numbers, there's no way of breaking that up with the dissatisfaction Canadians are feeling with Justin Trudeau. How are his numbers right now in comparison to the other federal leaders? Yeah, so we've seen for, for quite a number of time, uh, length of time that the cons Liberal uh, leaders' numbers, Mr. Trudeau's numbers have have gotten worse to the point now where more than half of Canadians say they have a negative impression of him, 53%, and only about 30% say they have a positive view of the Prime Minister. So a net, if we use kind of pollster talk, net negative about minus 24. Now when you compare Mr. Polyev or Mr. Singh, both of them are in actually the net positives. And for the first time, um, Mr. Polyev has opened up a pretty significant net favorable. So 40% of a positive view of the Conservative leader, um, only 32 negative. He's the most popular federal party leader today. And Mr. Singh has seen a, a, a little bump in the last few weeks. He's at 37 positive and 32 negative. So compared to the Prime Minister, the two main opposition party leaders are, are in much favorable view in, in terms of how Canadians feel about them. Okay, let's build on that. You know, what is it? about the Prime Minister, about Justin Trudeau th that Canadians take issue with? Well, we dug deeper and we looked at that 53% who say, I don't have a positive view of the Prime Minister and then tried to understand why. And for most people, it's because they're tired of the Prime Minister. It's not necessarily they think they don't like him as a person or they, they hate him. There's not deep, deep hatred. But for many, they're tired. But the vast majority, 90 plus percent, are saying, I don't think he's got a clear vision for the country. 
Uh, I don't think he keeps his promises that he that he makes. And um, and half are thinking he doesn't even really want the job. They don't see the fire in his belly anymore about why he wants to be prime minister. So I think a lot of it is fatigue. But underneath that, I think there's still a sense they don't know why the prime minister wants to continue to be prime minister. And as a result, they're looking for change. Okay, so bad numbers for the party, uh, bad assessments of the prime minister. You, you know, you asked the question, which we repeated, is there a way back for the liberals? Is there? There is. I, I wouldn't shut the door on, on a comeback. It's probably the hardest comeback they'll have to make since they were elected in 2015. But we asked people, if the following outcomes happened, would it make you more or less likely to vote Liberal? If the Prime Minister resigned, one in three of those who say they're not voting Liberal today say, hey, I might be more likely to vote Liberal if, if there's a new leader. What about if the economy improves or interest rates drop? There we're seeing similar numbers, about one in three of those non-supporters now saying, I might be open to it. And then there's, what about Mr. Poiliev? And what we learned there is, if it became clear that he was going to be prime minister, there's a sizable number of past liberal, even current New Democrat supporters who say, well, maybe I might vote liberal. Or what if uh, the prospect of him winning actually makes it, you uncomfortable? Um, that uh, has a big draw for the liberals. So what that points to is there's no clear, easy silver bullet that's going to solve their problems, but some combination of a new leader, improved economic situation, and perhaps people feeling less comfortable with Pierre Polyev creates the conditions for, for which the Liberals can come back. But I don't think one of those alone is likely to do it, and that path is quite narrow. Okay, so if two of the three were to change, if Trudeau were to stay, economic numbers improved, doubt remains about Pierre Polyev, is there a path, or does it take all three of those, which means a new leader, to resuscitate liberal uh, polling numbers? Well, I think, I think a few things have to happen. I think, yeah, two of three is probably enough, but Mr. Trudeau's numbers have to improve. I think they're so bad right now that people have to at least come to the point where they say he's better than the alternative, right? We've seen at the provincial level, uh, even federally, where many people said, I want change, I'm unhappy with the incumbent, but ultimately chose that incumbent because the alternatives were unacceptable. That requires um, the Liberals, and you're seeing the New Democrats do it too, try to bring Mr. Polyev down. He, is, he cannot be the most popular federal party leader. Um, if the Liberals are going to have a chance at winning the next election. Okay. Uh, David Coletto, thank you for this. I always appreciate the time. Thanks, Michael. And that is our program for this Tuesday evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow night, but up next, Esther Bejean avec L'Essentiel.